Howdy, folks. I'm Caleb Clark. I'm David Dorr. And I'm Ricky Flowers. And we are Late Motif. <laughs> this episode, we decided to be sad and listen to the big four of grunge music. That's right. Listen to the works of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden so we can find out what exactly is a spoon man. I mean, I, I still don't know. I don't know if you guys I have that no out. idea. Oh, apparently he's a musician based out of Seattle during the time, and they had him sort of like guest star on the song. Oh, so, I use okay. songs like that with just some random name. They're just referring to some like inside joke that they have. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that would be on brand. Soundgarden has so many just like weird names for their songs that like don't actually mean what like the song's actually about. <laughs> so bizarre to me. Yeah. Like the title to their third album, Bad Motor Finger. I realized what that was referring to <laughs> about a week later. Uh, man. Uh... <laughs> there you go, Ricky. I, I haven't given it any thought, but. I mean, I can, I can make some guesses, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, I think to start things off, we'll go ahead and like, for context of what's going on in the general world of grunge, to start off with some general bios. What was with these guys, and why were they all so <laughs> hopped up on heroin? By the way, that is a thing. Uh, there's going to be a lot of talk about death and depression and mental health and heroin and a little bit probably maybe on sexual assault, depending on how deep we dive into the lyrics. So be forewarned. Uh, not too much. <laughs> there, were a little, there were a couple songs. It was mostly Kurt uh, Cobain. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. mostly Kurt Cobain. <laughs> yeah, I think just him. Yeah. All right. Uh, Dave, do you want to kick us off with Nirvana since they're the popular ones? Yeah, I mean, I feel like most people kind of know basic background of Pearl Jam, um, not Pearl Jam, Nirvana. I mean, I think they're the only one that most, most people could um, name more than one member from, just on the top of their head. The Kurt Cobain, Dave Grohl, and who else? Chris Nasso something something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was those two. <laughs> with, uh, I'm looking it up right now. Novo Selic. Novo Selic? Um... Sounds about right. That um decided to start this project together. They started um trying to work out. And I actually am not too familiar with their stuff. I did not take any notes before I started doing this. I know that um if you guys are familiar with the Melvins, Kurt Cobain was really into them. They were yeah. kind of um working around and doing yeah. that sort of stuff. They're like if you were adding like another project into the um big four you'd probably do the Melvins, not smashing pumpkins like I heard some people trying to say. <laughs> yeah. And um yeah I mean basically it was just um they kind of also had the shortest kind of history of it all because Kurt Cobain was off doing like his um edgy um counterculture stuff in Seattle. He got a band it got big after Nevermind came off and ended um an album later with you know Famous um suicide. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. that's Nirvana. Uh, <laughs> Ricky, do you want to go next, or I can go next on the sure. I'll go next. So Soundgarden. So I guess I mean 
we might as well mention all four of these bands were from Seattle. Um, I didn't really look into like the context of what was going on in Seattle at the time, but it's obvious that there was kind of this whole underground rock movement going on with like there were bands like uh, Mother Love Bone. Was that the one who had wood in it? The and then yeah, just like the Melvins. I don't know if they were from Seattle, but um, yeah, there's all this gritty underground stuff going on. A lot of it seemed to be happening in Seattle. Uh, Soundgarden actually started out as a band called The Shimps. Kind of just performed in Seattle. It was just Chris Cornell, the lead singer of Soundgarden, and Hiro Yamamoto, and he was the bass player. And then eventually they became... Soundgarden in 1984 when they added uh, Kim Thale as a guitar player. Name come from this like weird wind-chilling pipe sculpture that's in Seattle, which I thought was interesting. Not sure why, but <laughs> uh, and then so yeah, they got their first album in 1988 called Ultra Mega. Okay, on SST Records, which I have a lot of the bands that have put out stuff on there, but it was create it was founded by Greg Jen, who was like the I think he started Black Flag, or he was like the first singer for Black Flag. Um, it's a pretty big underground record. Um, and then yeah, I don't know if it got super popular. I guess it looks like they were nominated for a Grammy nomination or a Grammy award for <laughs> one of the songs on there. And then another record um, on A&M Records called Louder Than Love that got a bit bigger. And then they had some lineup changes, ended up with bassist Ben Shepard, who... Uh, seemed to stay in the band. Oh, and also they had a different drummer. What was his name? Uh, Matt Cameron, I think. Um, they put out Bad Motor Finger, which I think probably got them like into the mainstream, mostly because of Jesus Christ pose. It was super controversial. I guess the music video was like controversial. It was banned from MTV. Which is just funny. I think I've watched that music video and it's not like there's nothing going on. But and then uh, so, and then they put out Super Unknown uh, in '94, and that was huge. It was Billboard number one or bill, the number one on the Billboard 200. Um, and then. They put out one more album in 96, Down on the Upside, and like they were doing tons of touring. I think they just got like worn out, and there was a lot of like conflict and stuff. <laughs> Apparently, during the last stop of a tour in 97, the bassist threw his bass into the air in frustration after suffering equipment failure and then stormed off the stage. And then... 
two months later, the band announced they were disbanding. <laughs> um, and then there's all the post breakup stuff. I don't know if we need to go into that. Um, I guess it's worth mentioning that uh, Chris Cornell did well. He died in 2017, but I didn't realize it was so recent. And like, I, I guess the consensus is that it was suicide, but his wife is like, well, I guess she would be, but very doubtful about whether it was really suicide. Um, but yeah, that's an appropriately sad note <laughs> to end it on. <laughs> but yeah. also sad. Thanks. Thanks, Ricky. Sure. All right. Uh, I'll go next. Uh, so I took on Alice in Chains, which started off when frontmen Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell were both Seattle musicians bouncing around a bunch of bands. They were also friends and roommates. And then eventually they managed to start their own band called Alice in Chains, taken from a glam metal group that Staley was in earlier, except in that one, the N was spelled like how Guns N' Roses spells and. So it's like Alice in Chains, totally radical. Anyway. You just have Alice, so they, they have Chains. Yep. Yep. This and so they picked up. Anyway. Yeah. They have a bassist, Mike Starr, and drummer Sean Kinney. And they start doing gigs, working together, and they actually end up getting a bunch of really pretty lucrative opening gigs, which apparently weren't well received, but they were still getting out there. They were like working with Slayer, Anthrax, Metallica, Iggy Pop, Extreme, Van Halen, uh, Poison, like right in those early days, like doing openings for all of them. So that was a little crazy. And then in 1990, they released their album Facelift, which I'll get to my opinion on later. It's generally said to have like kind of Prime the pump for grunge to really take over in 91, but it's also a lot closer to like the glam metal of the late 80s. Like it's not a super grungy album. Anyway, uh, then in 1992, they released their big album called Dirt, which is this huge, sludgy, almost like very metal album about death and heroin. And everyone buys it and it's super popular. And in 1994, uh, well, they have a really great time with Lollapalooza. In 1994, they released Jar of Flies, a uh, more stripped-down EP, which is one of only eight EPs in Billboard history to reach number one. And it's the very first, and for 10 years, it was the only EP to reach number one. So they were huge. But also, they were falling apart. Uh, bassist Mike Starr gets kicked off, kicked out of the band mid-tour. The band claims that he wasn't able to keep up with the stress and he needed a break. He says it was his heroin addiction, which... It's probably the heroin because he ends up overdosing of heroin years later. And also, the front man, Lane Staley, is really doing bad. Like, he tries to go to rehab, but he isn't able to kick the smack. And they end up canceling their 1994 summer tour the day before. And they just sort of hold themselves away. 1995, they make their self-titled album, which is even heavier and even more about heroin. And 1996, they managed to do an MTV Unplugged concert, which is their first show in three years. So, and then Haley non-fatally overdoses on heroin again in 1996, and they go on this weird breakup hiatus thing. Haley dies of an overdose in 2002, and Jerry Cantrell ends up getting the band back together and releasing new music by 2009. So, another depressing story. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's rough. Dave, you got the one that where the lead singer's still alive. Yes, yes, yes. Pearl Jam is the um, only band of these big four, as far as I know, that um, had no one die of heroin overdoses or in general. Um, let's see. The kind of the place to start with um, Pearl Jam is um, this kind of super group that formed Temple of the Dog. So basically, what happened with that is that um, Chris Cornell had um. One of his friends died. I believe his name was Andrew Wood. And he, um, Andrew Wood was a member of the lead singer of a band called Mother Love Bone. And um, Cornell was um, torn up over um, Wood's death. So he wanted to gather um, a bunch of members from Mother Love Bone, including um, Jeffrey Ament and um, Stone Gossard, and made a little group out of it. And we were looking for another vocalist. Um, it got passed around to um, Eddie Vetter, who was um, working at like a gas station or something like that while doing music part-time. And um, they um, released their full album, and that's kind of how Eddie Vetter got big. And he ended up taking most members of Temple of the Dog, um, including um, Stone Gossard and um, Jeff Ament, and um, made their own little band out of it. And then they um, released 10, which is considered one of the best debut albums of the 90s. It's very, very popular. And they were dark, but they weren't quite... They never got to the depths that Alice in Chains and Nirvana got to. They were very different than that. There's um, always considered a lot more arena rocky than the other grunge acts. Um, during the time, they were actually considered um, sellouts by a lot of people, because they definitely had the most... Um, kind of mainstream accessible sound out of any of these bands. And they just kept it going for about three albums. And then in Vitology, I believe was the album they did, their third one, they decided that um, they wanted to fight against the Ticketmaster monopoly and refuse to do any shows with Ticketmaster. And um, that basically is where things got weird for them. They started doing a lot of experimentation with their music. Like, um, I believe Vitology is the one that has, um, there might be no code. One of them has the um, accordion in it, which is kind of fun. Oh, yeah. There was like bugs, and uh, the closing yeah, track is just them playing tapes of <laughs> mental institution patients talking to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, this is the time where Pearl Jam got kind of weird, and it's been described as, um, and deciding they were too cool to be popular anymore. They kind of um, got up their own ass about it. And um, yeah, that's been their career. They've just been making all these weird music until um, recently when they released a couple more um, mainstream albums. Having, um, well, okay, I wouldn't call Gigaton mainstream. That was a weird album. That was like a space opera. That was odd. But I guess we're not going to be talking about that. I don't know. No code sound pretty normal to me, but maybe that's me being weird yeah. being like, <laughs> I don't feel anything. Yeah. No, no, no code. No code is the album. Um, all the Pearl Jam fans hate. Uh, I, I can I see guess that. It's their worst one. It, it sounded like a band who they're, they're really. Guess 
going like, hey, let's be weird, which is basically what it was. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Like, let's try really hard to be weird and quirky. But I mean, that's not what they do. So but yeah, anyways, I'm sure we'll get more into it. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, every single member of Pearl Jam is still alive. So I confirmed it. And um, literally every member of Temple of a Dog joined Pearl Jam, except for um, Chris Cornell, of course. So Temple of a Dog is basically Pearl Jam featuring um, Chris Cornell, even though um, Temple of a Dog came first. Be like that. They just, there was a lot of collaboration. Like apparently the guy, the manager for, on the, I think Soundcard's manager, like, passed Allison Chains on to Columbia or whoever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're all interconnected. It's weird. And, uh, yeah, there's so yeah, there's so many connections. Like uh Chris Cornell's wife ended up managing uh, Alice in Chains <laughs> for a while. Like That's... just random stuff like that. Turns out the grunt scene in Seattle may be a bit um incestuous. That's <laughs> how so I've been told. So that one, like, greatest uh, grunge albums list told me. <laughs> All intertwined and weird. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's see. What do we want to do? Do we want to do, like, evolution of grunge first, or do we want to do, like, general takes on the different bands? And... Let's just do general takes on the bands. I got some hot ones whipped out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, let's do it backwards, just for kicks and giggles. Uh, starting with Pearl Jam, what y'all got? Well, I think I'm thinking I'm going to go step aside first. I think um, you guys all know um, my feelings on these guys as being one of the greatest bands of all times. So we're just like giving our general thoughts on the bands. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, Pearl Jam. They're. Uh, probably my least favorite of the four, but um, definitely just a fun band, and they're like the least they're like the least difficult to listen to. I I don't really I haven't really seen this anywhere, but to me they kind of have like a jam rock sort of vibe to them. I don't know. Just sometimes it kind of just sounds like they're just jamming out a little bit. Um, and also, to me, they sound more like like seventies like rock bands, like the Who kind of. Not so much like um, any metal bands necessarily. Um, but yeah, they're definitely, I don't know. I might find myself coming back to them more than, at least more than Alice in Chains. <laughs> but um, also their their lyrics, Eddie Vedder's lyrics are usually, he does a lot more storytelling than any of the others, which I enjoyed. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my take. I guess. No, it's funny that you bring up the um, jam bit because um, do any of you guys know how Pro Jam um, said it on their name? I was just reading about that. <laughs> yeah. So um, basically, Eddie Vedder had already decided on Pearl being in the name, but then um, he wasn't sure what to put after it, and he ended up going to like this Neil Young show 
where the band just started like you know just doing a jam for like 17 20 minutes because that was a very popular um music style in the 90s where you just kind of riff for like 20 minutes and Eddie Vedder was like hey we'll just call it Pearl Jam that's the um deep secret behind it um for a while like from between like 19 like since the founding of the band until like 2004 or something he's claimed that it was like Native American in the origin but um and he said that was a lie instead of the real way he got named Guess if I have to give my general takes on Pearl Jam, uh, a lot of, on what Ricky said, uh, definitely agree. Very big on storytelling. They seem the most lyrical of the four, of the big four. Like they were the ones that have the most intention and structure behind their stuff. And they are also probably the most normal. I honestly found them a little bit rootsy. Maybe it's because like I saw one random Todd in the Shadows yeah. clip that said, mentioned it's like Better Man was kind of a country song in nature. But yeah, they have, they have more of a country and folk vibe sometimes and like also a big part for me that seemed different is that there's not really that sense of irony and detachment that you see from the other groups you know it's they seem like earnest in a way that you don't get from any of the other ones except maybe Alice in Chains but Alice in Chains earnestness is always very sneering and they're just <laughs> they're just kind of crying a lot and also <laughs> Also, they're the only ones who seem to be able to tone it down for any extended amount of time. Like, Nirvana could only do it for a couple songs, and uh, the MTV Unplugged. Alice in Chains did it for EPs, but they were still creepy as ever. And Soundgarden just doesn't sound good stripped down, but Pearl Jam can pull it off, so props to them. That's my general take. Yeah, well, um... I love Pearl Jam. Um, probably the main reason for it is that I am a huge fan of Eddie Vedder's vocals. I think he is an amazing vocalist. Um, I understand that out of all of these people, Eddie Vedder's singing has um, caused the most objective harm to the world by um, people trying to mimic it and doing it horribly. Like any um, post-grunge singer you can think of, and their stupid sounding voice. That's them trying to copy Eddie Vedder. Look at this photograph. Yeah, and they, they can't pull it off, but Eddie Vedder can yeah. so sound great. Somehow I feel like Eddie Vedder's vocals are the most just like raw and natural. Like I mean all the all the other three are like very rough sounding and but also pretty I don't know. Eddie yeah, Vedder's like almost that, like kind of yeah. has like a little opera thing going on in it almost. Like it goes, I don't know. It has a lot of tone to it. Um, yeah, but if you listen to like a holler, yeah. If you um actually listen to him talk, that's just how his voice sounds. Like he's not faking it. Just like what he sounds like when he sings. <laughs> and yeah, then the other things you guys kind of touched on, um. I think they're easily the best at telling a story about not themselves. I think the other um, bands in the big um, four are very much into the introspection, looking at their self and their own story. Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam are much better at creating stories um, about other people. Like you can see that on um, Even Flow, Why Go Home, uh, just so I can be on top of my head on 10. 
Um, Better Man, you mentioned, is another good one of that. Um, and then I mentioned that they have a lot of arena rock in their sound, which I'm probably is the biggest reason I'm really into them, because I'm an arena rock guy. They can fill up the stadium just fine. And yeah, big, big Pearl Jam fan. Also just great instrumentation. Members of the band are all extremely talented. Nice. Uh, uh, working to the next Actually, one. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think when, one thing, I don't know. I think maybe Pearl Jam's instrumentation was the least conspicuous of any of them. I, I don't know. I get. I wasn't thinking about it much in these terms, but I don't remember there being many like impressive instrumental moments from Pearl Jam, whereas most of the other band. Well, yeah, but I don't know. Okay, that's definitely not a bad thing. That was just that's just the way I would contrast them. But anyway. Uh, which one is next? Uh, if we're sticking with the backwards, I guess Alice in Chains. I can start okay. since apparently I'm the only one who likes them. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm not as big a fan of Facelift because I have mentioned before what I'm. There, like, first album was fine, but it was kind of mainstream. But like, I'm just in it because they like just make this super heavy, dark stuff. With like you know, guitars going all out. The the two of them harmonizing. I guess that's a big part because like Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley harmonize their vocals, and it makes them pretty distinct. And they have that, and it's all just this weird kind of bad trip vibe that I really enjoy. It's like a because I come, I'm honestly more of a sludge metal person than a grunge person. They're the sludgiest and the most metal of the big four. I feel, and so. That's honestly a lot. And also they just so delightfully tormented in a way that feels gross when you think about what actually happened to Mike Starr and Lane Staley. But you know what? I enjoyed those albums. They're my two favorite. And them's my thoughts. Um, yeah, I guess I'll go next. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I couldn't really figure out how I felt about <laughs> Alice in Chains. Um, to me, they seem more, uh, it's like as much as these four bands like are writing from pretty dark places, Alice in Chains seem, seem the most like they're kind of wallowing in it. <laughs> and uh, I guess maybe that's just part of the style that they're going for and so maybe that's just not a style that i like so much but also i don't know i do really like most of rust i mean ah, dirt i keep i keep wanting to call it rust it's called dirt right yeah that does, that does seem like a name that i would be in a grunge album though just rust. yeah yeah but yeah then like the self-titled I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes it just gets a little much when the songs go a little bit too long past five minutes without new ideas and it 
just kind of starts to really get you down. But um, yeah, on the whole, I definitely respect what they did and like, it's, it's pretty cool how they use like all that sludge and like dark, really heavy riffs and stuff, but, you know, incorporated the, the harmonized vocals and some pretty catchy melodic moments as well. So yeah, on the whole, I, I, I think I, I would return to a lot of their stuff. Yeah, and um, I, when I came into this, I was the one that suggested the grunge um, idea to do this for an episode. And when I came in, I was expecting, okay, I'm probably going to not like Alice in Chains. Um, I'm going to dislike them the most because I'm, I never really listened to them before and the stuff that I had heard I hadn't liked. But I was, um, I left with a very positive impression of the just kind of their act in general. I think I really underrated how um, good Lane Staley is at um, um, just singing in general. Although a hot take I'm going to give here is that I think that um, Jar of Flies is better than Dirt. I think that, I think Ricky's right when he's talking about how Alice in Chains stick with their kind of sludgy more metal sound it's really starts kind of dragging on a little bit but Dora Flies had a lot of different um kind of sounds going on in it like I think my favorite of their songs might be No Excuses from Dora Flies it almost sounded like it could have been on um Green Day's Warning it was just like a weird like acoustic song it was almost like cheery and upbeat I was like, whoa, I didn't know Alice in Chains could um, have this kind of variety in their music. So but even even Dirt, I still really enjoyed it. I thought it was very well put together. I was not a fan of that um, self-titled, though. It was, that was like Dirt done poorly. It was just way too the same. Songs were too long. And the biggest gripe I have with a lot of these front jacks and... Um, Alice in Chains is not excluded from this, is that they spend so much time on the lyrics, and then you can't understand them at all. Like, I can hardly make out anything that, um, Lane Staley is saying anywhere on almost any of their music. It's just so hard for me to get. And I don't know if that's a me problem, but it's kind of... If you're writing to try to express something, some deep emotion, like, to make it, like, intelligible, uh, I know. I, I honestly had that problem more with Pearl Jam because Eddie, oh, you should have Eddie. You should, yeah, you should have it with Pearl Jam. <laughs> yeah, like beyond that, like especially on Tin, like when they tried to go for the really big sound, like I mm-hmm. felt that really covered up a lot of the lyrics. But that's getting off track. Yeah, Pearl Jam had the problem too. I included that. Yeah, I I don't know. I think it's funny that Eddie Vedder gets picked on so much because yeah. I mean, Kurt Cobain certainly is pretty incomprehensible a lot of the time, too. <laughs> Kurt Chris Cornell is the only one you can understand. Yeah. We'll get to Kurt Cobain, but he's probably the weakest the singer of the big four. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think, it's, I think it's pretty easy. I'm not... 
I don't think it's even weakest of the big four. I just don't think he can sing. Like, just period. He he makes it work, but it's like, he could not actually sing. Like, it's just like, we can get into it later, but he's just not, like, mechanically able to do the things you would expect a professional singer to do. Yeah, but he, I think he's completely aware of that. And, yeah. like, he yeah. does, everything he does in, is intentional. So, whereas... Yeah, I mean, I think there are, times, the there are times when Lane Staley is seems to me to be trying to hit notes that he's not hitting. I don't know. I don't really understand the Lane Staley love that much. It doesn't seem that good of a singer to me, but anyway. <laughs> All right. Soundgarden time? Yeah, let's do Soundgarden. All right. I can go. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess I don't know. Soundgarden really let me down. I kind of started placing bands and kind of like of scale of how clean their sound was, and Soundgarden's was definitely the cleanest, which was kind of almost a disappointment for me. Like it was just a very polished sound, like. I don't know. It always felt too controlled for me to really get into it. Like they never really let loose in the way that the other bands did. So I was like, I don't know. Like Black Hole Sun. Like what's what's that? That you're not letting loose in that. And even their more aggressive stuff like um, Ty Cobb, it just doesn't get that same chaotic energy other songs these grunge acts do have always so in control and so polished that's almost kind of boring and because i don't think you can do this style of music while being that in control and that just polished i don't know if that's just a me thing but am i general takeaway i was kind of disappointed i'm 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 also pretty conflicted on soundgarden i think uh i think that well, that control like they're definitely the best instrumentalists like they can play like nobody's business and they're like they're in a very metal sort of way like much more just straight up metal as opposed to the others even Alice in Chains uh which on the one hand worked for Bad Motor Finger for me that was one of my favorite albums from this experience but it's also probably the least grungy of all the albums that we listened to but yeah uh I feel like Black Hole Sun, when they decide to go full on Black Sabbath, uh, or the general super unknown, they go for the whole Black mm -hmm. Sabbath, but heavier vibe. That works for me, but it was more of an aesthetic than anything. Yeah, they're not super interesting. And also, Down on the Upside was my least favorite of all these albums, I gotta say. Like, it just seemed weak. Half of it was lame, and the other half was the usual. And also the songs like Ty Cobb, where they go super fast, sounded more like joke songs to me. But not a funny joke like when Kurt Cobain does joke songs. Like, just not very Yeah, good. like, Ty Cobb's probably... It's probably one of my favorite Soundgarden songs, not only because it's um, aimed after a Detroit athlete. Um, but even during it, it felt so polished and in control, and it's a song about wanting to beat the crap out of some guy and just be a monster rebel. 
and it just so it never breaks down. Like Me. I was even I was even looking into the song, and um, they said in an interview is that it always looks like it's on the edge of um breaking, it's like breaking down completely out of control, but it never does. I was like, yes, yes, that's the point. It's supposed to break down. That's what run gets. But, uh, I do feel I do feel like. Like I said before, I think they're the strongest when they're trying to least be grunge. Like, again, Bad Motor Finger is just, they have saxophones on there. Grunge doesn't have a saxophone. <laughs> what are you doing, guys? <laughs> but it works for the music. But yeah. And also, they were the ones that were the least interesting lyrically. Like, I couldn't even care what Chris Cornell's angst is. It just sounds like, well, oh, these words sound good. Throw them on. Yeah, I think I can agree with that. The lyrics were not greatest. But I, yeah, it, I think actually overall Soundgarden might be my favorite of the four. I think probably just because they have the most variety like instrumentally um, and their songwriting is always really interesting. Lots of like just interesting chord progressions and like interesting different parts for each song. Um, I think I saw somewhere that Dave Grohl uh, described Black Hole Sun as like the Beatles mixed with <laughs> Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, which I don't know if I can really hear that, but I can actually I, it hear does that. Have, does have a very similar pop, like sort like sophisticated pop chord progression. I think maybe that's where the Beatles comparison comes from. I don't know. But yeah, I think they have a lot of interesting songwriting. Like by songwriting, I mean like chord progressions and different instrumental parts and stuff. But yeah. I think just like all the variety is probably my favorite, like the reason they're my favorite, but. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now it's time to ascend to Nirvana. Mm. Uh. I can open up this mosh pitch. Uh, yeah, let's see. I thought they were like the least technically proficient in any way, but also in a way they still made it work to their advantage and managed to do very interesting stuff. Uh, Bleach is probably my least favorite, but only by a tiny margin. It's just this very abrasive, punky album. Uh, Never mind, like it's less an album and more a random collection of singles that just all sound really good on their own. And then in utero is of course when they try to be all experimental and noise rocky. I thought I don't know. Kirk Cobain can do some really great hooks. Like he can write hooks for days, which was sort of unusual with it compared to the other four. And also he has the seemed to have the most interesting influences, like he took all the stuff from punk all the noise influences he honestly seemed to have some goth influences as well 
like the little guitar tones on the verses for it smells like teen spirit or the entirety of come as you are and like his whole lyrical conceit of you know self-contradicting angst and pressures of fame and being an outsider and all that like yeah they have the shtick down i would say that would be one of my big takeaways from them uh yeah as musicians and singers they weren't all that great but they just had a good thing going Okay, please no Dave Grohl slander here. Love and respect Dave Grohl. He's a, he's the drummer, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, there's there's one Nirvana song that has like my favorite drum part of any of these bands. Um, which song is it? Uh, it's uh, Milk It. I love that song so much. Anyways, David, give you a take. <laughs> oh yes, yes. So. I was talking with Soundgarden about kind of the scale from polished to unpolished. Nirvana's definitely on the other edge of that. Yeah, Caleb was talking about how they had a lot of like kind of punk and noise um, kind of sympathies, and that's true. Kurt Cobain was really just really part of the counterculture and just wanted to push people's buttons. Um, the name of the project he was a part of before Nirvana was called Fecal Matter. So that kind of gives you an idea of kind of the um, highbrow and um, humor and um, kind of edginess and um, oh, what's the word I'm thinking of? A persuasive, whatever I can't think of it. Think of it. Um, subversive. Subversive, that was it. Yep. And it kind of worked for me because it depends. It's only three albums, so I kind of just walk down what I think of each of them. Um, Bleach is obviously an album where the, there's no production on it. It just is not, it looks like a do-it-yourself like little album. Like it's not produced well at all. It just sounds kind of bad, but it's kind of part of the appeal of Nirvana because I think they're, they're definitely the least musically inclined of any of the big four. Like I do not think that Kurt Cobain knows how to sing. I like, kind of put him in the Bob Dylan category. Maybe not. Oh, not quite, not quite as bad. That's kind of unfair, but same kind of thing where it's not really that he can sing, it's just the emotion he can put into his voice that makes it good. And I feel like Nevermind kind of ruins that because they make it more mainstream and traditional. I know it's kind of looking at it in hindsight a little bit. Sure, it was more kind of um, subversive at the time, but I... I hate Nevermind. I do not I, don't, I do not think it's good. Like it just seemed so boring and just tepid and mainstream where it was like, okay, what's the point? There's some decent stuff on it, but like nothing world blowing. Like I could live my entire life without listening to smells like Team Spirit and I would not have any negative impacts, like just at all. But in utero, I think, did a good job of bringing them back to more of um, an experimental look because they had a lot of different styles on that one. Um, I think Tourette's is probably one of my favorite Nirvana songs, just at all. And I think you can just by the name of it what that song sounds like. So yeah, Nirvana's an interesting one for me. I'm not sure who I'd rank higher between um, Soundgarden, um, not Soundgarden, Nirvana and Alice in Chains. One of those two would be second, but I don't know which one. I will add on, it is like in utero in a lot of ways, it's just 
Kurt Cobain flipping the table on everyone who jumped on the bad wagon and to make it the lyrics to In Bloom because like one he has a song he has a radio friendly unit shifter where he's just random abrasive noises and also uh sexual assault warning but he reuses the rift or smells like team spirit in a song called rape me which when you use your biggest hit in a song called rape me you don't want people to like you anymore yeah see both nirvana and pearl jam are really trying to just like stick it to people that thought they were popular bands but Kurbane was a lot more aggressive with how they did it. Pearl Jam just kind of went weird. Nirvana went actively trying to punch you in the face. Which I really like Nirvana punching you in the face. For me, it's a close call between Soundgarden and Nirvana being my favorite. I, I like, I really like Nirvana's humor. I like the, it just make me laugh <laughs> sometimes. Um, and like, I like how his lyrics are often just very simplistic but also like abstract kind of and yeah i don't know i just find that entertaining <laughs> um, so i decided i decided to look up stuff about the in utero recording process and i wonder if you'd read the sentence from wikipedia real quick um first of all the album was recorded within two weeks and was mixed over five days and um it was um, kind of mixed and produced by this um, guy called Albini. Oh, yeah, Steve Albini. Albini. Steve yeah. Albini. And um, there's a sentence here that I think is really funny. Um, on occasions when work on a song mix was not producing desired results, the band and Albini took the rest of the day yeah. off to watch nature videos, set things on fire, and make prank phone calls for amusement. <laughs> that, that really shows you kind of what um Nirvana was all about. Yeah. And also their Tops of the Pops performance. For reference, uh it's this British show and like called Top of the Pops, and like it would always require their performers lip sync their material. And Kurt Cobain not only refused, wait no. What happened was like they played the backing track, but he kept doing the vocals himself. And so, you know, while it smells like Team Spirit, the whole thrashing, he's just got this big goofy grin on his face and doing his guitar like a Chuck E. Cheese animatronic. And then he does, and then he sings in a Morrissey impression like, hello, 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 hello. Blah, 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 <laughs> like that. The guitar time is just the best thing. <laughs> huh. Good old Kurt. <laughs> I think I I also think I just have a soft spot for Kurt Cobain because I've I don't I haven't really watched interviews with any of any of the other people but he's just a a pretty sensitive guy which you would never have which I don't know just kind of shocked me from like like also just the way he talks you would never imagine the, the singer of Break Me would talk that way but yeah all right so what's next uh let's see do we want to talk about general notes on like how the sort of sound changed or we do want to just go straight into albums we liked and didn't like um i think we just do just go straight into the albums we kind of 
kind yeah, of talked about sure. differences between their styles. I'll I'll say this about the grunge. I don't think there was an album in here that was full on bad. Like there were some albums that weren't great, but like nothing below a five out of ten for me personally. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. It's right. close. I think I think Nevermind is a five out of ten. And then not a strong five out of ten, but I just don't get, I don't understand that. How could you, how could you love in utero and bleach, but hate never mind? It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> oh, okay. In my, in my defense, Kurt Cobain actually agrees with me, kind of. Because he said that um, Nevermind was very um, one-dimensional and more mainstream and compressed. And that's why they made in utero to try to, um, like, Expand on that and be the opposite of um. Never mind. Uh, but there are still like several songs on In Utero that could have been on Never Mind if they were produced more in a polished way. So it's more of it's not like a complete reverse. It's just like a progression. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I think the only ones that fully matched were probably like Polly and that closing song. Like the rest, like. The rest of them, you would have like just do the hard shape box style production, and then they might be able to fit there. But otherwise, I don't, I don't say this much. It's so or boring just... when I try listening to it. Oh yeah, and another thing, it's hard for it's also hard for me to you never mind objectively, like on a level with the rest of these albums, just because it smells like Teen Spirit, Lithium, uh. And come another as song, are. yeah, come as you are, just so huge. Like I've, I heard the, I knew those songs when I was like twelve, probably. I didn't like before I even knew about any of these other bands. So they've just made like a really permanent impression for me. So yeah, that's probably part of it. I would say overall, albums that I thought, uh, big notes. Uh, least favorite albums were probably Down on the Upside by Soundgarden and No Code. Those were just kind of, I don't know, I was just kind of bored. I thought they were a little bit weak, a little mediocre. Honestly, I, and honestly, Vitalogy, I got what they were going for, but I don't think they executed it too well. And then Facelift was just okay at best. But my favorite albums, I would probably say top five are In Utero, Bad Motor Finger versus Dirt, Dirt and Alice in Chains. Like, self-titled album was straight up my favorite album of all of these. So, Wow. <laughs> I like blues. I like slush metal. I like following. I don't yeah. like heroin. Um... Okay, I'll go. So my my least favorite albums kind of matched up with yours. Like I didn't, yeah, No Code and Facelift was down there. Also, I had to put the self-titled down there because like I said, it just really dragged on, even though there were some really strong songs on there. But um, I also didn't like Down on the Upside that much. 
but it's more mid-tier, I guess. And then, I, yeah, I'd say my top five are probably, I put super unknown. I'd say that's probably number one, although that and in utero are pretty close. And then I, really, I did really like dirt and bad motor finger and also never mind. So those are pretty much my top five. Yeah. And then I'm going to sound like a real hater here. I did not enjoy any of the Soundgarden albums. I think that they're all basically good, per se, except for um, um, Down on the Upside. I think that one was just not good. But not enjoy any of the Soundgarden, like, at all. And then I did not like the Alice in Chains self-titled. Or never mind, so... I guess I disliked a few more of these than um, you all did. Um, no Code gets a lot of hate, and I get it. I don't go back and listen to it a lot, but I don't think it's bad, per se. Um, I think they just do better work after it. Like, I think Pro Jam's late stuff is actually really good, and it's just, like, really underrated. People do not talk about it, like, at all, but they really should. And I had to do my top ten and probably be... Put ten at top, and then it would be jar of flies, in utero, dirt, and then verses. Vitology, uh, vitology can kind of mess with me a little bit. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. It's so, so weird. Yeah. That's such I, a I weird album. Up, I straight up hated bugs. Like that was the one album where it's like, Eddie, I will kick you in the teeth. I don't care that you made better man. I don't care that you made immortal. I'm kicking you in the teeth. See, I don't know. I kind of like it when a band's just like flipping you off and saying, hey, I don't care what you enjoy. Like, I'm just going to do what I want. Screw you. That's called jazz after like 1960. That, that works when it sounds good. <laughs> or not when it sounds good. It's just, a, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just a bad intersection because honestly, I think it sounds a lot like in utero to me, like the ethos. But like, since their roots are a lot more in classic rock and folk and arena rock, like it comes off really weird. Yeah, and to... I will say, Bugs is probably the hardest I laughed at a song in a while. It was so funny to me the first time I heard it. <laughs> it was um on the same level as like um Lift Yourself and um. Any other comedy song was just so funny. Watch him rant about bugs while there's an accordion going on in the background. It was so stupid. Next greatest Weird Al hit, Bugs 2.0. Oh, nice. Or Insects. All right. Uh, I think that sounds like we're got everything we want to say. Yeah. Any any closing notes that we want to um address before we um tune out don't don't commit suicide yeah and don't, don't do heroin either <laughs> oh yeah that's probably the first step yeah. <laughs> the two things are related that's yeah really sad no, it... yeah okay yeah, I spent... especially the lane staley story oh. i mm-hmm. was reading a bit about that and that's just like really okay. dark stuff but... yeah 
that's the latest episode of Late Motif. We talked about grunge with Alice in Chains, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Sam Garden. I'm Caleb Clark. I'm David Dorr. I'm Ricky Flowers. <laughs> <laughs>